Well, good morning. I'm, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, Moy and Jeff, that song was awesome, guys. I hope you remember that uh, you still have to tithe royalties once you put it on Spotify. So that was good stuff, man. Thank you guys for leading us. Would you join me in uh, a brief word of prayer before we get started this morning? Heavenly Father, we plead with you, Lord, to open our eyes, Lord, open our ears. Help us to not just be hearers of the word, um, but Lord, help us to understand it. Help, it. help us to be moved by the power of your spirit, um, and then help us to be doers of the word. Lord Jesus, we need you every hour, um, but especially as we approach your good and powerful word given to us, we ask for your help. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for speaking to us, for giving us what we have here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Until this year, 1967 was known as the year of the protest, along with the race riots that um, were going on throughout American cities. We also had in Washington, D.C., a massive protest regarding the Vietnam War. And during one of these protests, this now famous photograph was taken. It would initially run in Look Magazine, and before long it was on the front page of virtually every major American newspaper. And the power of this photograph is not in the individuals, right? It doesn't really matter who this woman is. It doesn't really matter the names of the soldiers. Instead, because of this contrast between this young flower power woman and these armed soldiers, the photo says something. It moves something in us. It's in large part a summation of the 1960s, right? The hippie movement. Uh, it's also a picture of right, institutions trying and in some ways succeeding and in many ways failing to respond to revolution. Photographers, of which I am not, and literature nerds, of which I am, call this kind of contrast a, a juxtaposition. That is a contrast that says something in and of Itself. So just like this photograph is real, right? It's historical. It actually happened. And, but it's also framed, isn't it? It's one specific perspective with one specific message about what the 1960s were. Just like this photograph, so too does Matthew 14 give us a, a juxtaposition. It gives us a contrast of Herod, Herod Antipas, and John the Baptist. And in this contrast, what we see is not responses to a war, but in this contrast, what we see is responses to Jesus, two very different responses to the person and the work of Jesus. In contrast, as you've already heard, these men certainly are. I'm actually reminded of Psalm chapter 1 as I read these verses. You remember Psalm 1 that speaks of the righteous and the wicked. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, whereas the wicked are like chaff that the wind simply blows away. They are here one moment and, and gone the next. So as we have this in mind, this, this contrast, right, this juxtaposition of these two men, let's look together at these two men. I want to show you, one, how Herod's sin ensnared him. I want to show you, secondly, how John's gospel propelled him. And then I want to close by showing you how Jesus' compassion readies him. So the first thing we see in this passage is that Herod's sin ensnared him. I can only think of Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22, which says, A wicked man's iniquities will trap him. He will become entangled in the ropes of his own sin. 
So to understand Herod's sin, we have to really know who Herod is. All right? So Herod is, you've got a lot of Herods in Matthew. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. So if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you might remember Herod the Great, or you, maybe you don't because it's not really a story that lent itself to VeggieTales episodes, but Herod the Great was the man who decided to execute every young, man, young boy under the age of two when he heard that there might be a new king in town. He heard the prophecy of Jesus coming. Obviously, Jesus and his parents eluded that decree. But Herod would actually end up having three of his six sons executed at various points in time because he was suspicious that they were after his throne. And so the three remaining sons that survived were then given upon Herod the Great's death, his kingdom. They split it up into three parts. These were called tetrarchs, right? So you can sometimes hear Herod called Herod the Tetrarch, which means he wasn't really a king. He was more like a, maybe a prince or a governor. Um, but oftentimes, you know, as people are prone to do, they would call him King Herod to try to suck up to him. And so he's Herod, he's King Herod, he's Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great. And what we hear in this passage is that Antipas, with his model of dear old dad, right, turns out not to be such a great king either. And he falls into sin, a very unusual sin. He marries his already married sister-in-law, who is also his niece, is the stuff that a soap opera writer wouldn't write because it's too unrealistic, right? Um, so he marries Philip, his brother's wife, who was given to him as a wife by another one of his brothers who gave him their, their daughter. And so Herodias and Herod uh, have a mutual affection, it seems, for one another, and they both abandon their previous marriages and then marry each other. And John the Baptist hears of this and speaks publicly against it. And when he does, this pricks Herod's conscience. All right? So it turns out Herod feels a bit guilty about this. He also knows that politically this is not going to be good if he's got this prophet who's calling him out publicly over his sin. And so he does the easy thing. Rather than repenting, right? rather than turning back to his true bride and giving Herodias back to his brother, instead of listening to his conscience, he imprisons John. He ignores his conscience and throws John to jail. As a matter of fact, we know from Mark's gospel that Herod has a love-hate relationship with John. He's, he's fascinated by John. He's intrigued by John. Um, we see in Mark chapter 6, when Herod heard him, he was very perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. So you can hear, you can imagine Herod with one eyebrow raised, hearing this strange man wearing camel's hair and with a, a locust leg sticking out of his mouth, speaking this news of the kingdom, and Herod knows a kingdom, right? He knows he's king over what he thinks is the kingdom, but he's interested to hear what this unusual prophet has to say, but he's not so interested that when this prob- prophet publicly humiliates him, he's not going to throw him into jail. And that's what he does. But as we know about sin, as we begin to fall into patterns of sin, right? as Herod begins to fall into patterns of sin, those sins begin to cast a web that becomes increasingly hard to get out of. So Herod ignores his conscience once in relation to his second wife and decides to suppress it and throw the prophet into jail. And suddenly, he's caught in a web of lust and vanity and power eventually leading him to murder. And so as his stepdaughter comes to dance for his birthday party, uh, which is unusual in itself, Matthew notes that this pleased Herod. This is a euphemism. It, it aroused 
Herod. He was enjoying what he was seeing. And um, while Herod has a solution for John's disrespect, which is throw in prison Herodias, Herod's wife is even more evil than he. Her solution is a bit less discreet. She wants his head on a platter. And so she connives the solution to get Herod worked up into a frenzy, to make a rash vow. And as you heard, instead of again taking this moment, right, to repent, okay, this has gone too far. I've thrown this man in prison. Now I've made a rash oath as I was likely inebriated and I was past the point. And so I've made this rash oath to my stepdaughter. But now it's coming down to execution and murder. Instead of taking this moment to repent, Herod is caught up and entangled in this web. He sees no other way out. He doesn't want to be embarrassed in front of his friends. He doesn't want more public humiliation. And so he goes through with the murder of an innocent man. Not only an innocent man, but a man of God, the one who Jesus called the greatest of all men. You see, Jesus, is, I'm sorry, Herod is not unlike the third soil that Matthew just referenced in chapter 13. The soil, you remember the parable of the soils? And the third one is that which is planted and it begins to sprout up, right? Herod is intrigued. He, he's curious. He's got a little sprout springing. He's heard the message of the kingdom. But the vines of lust and the weeds of power began to crowd out what little fruit Herod might bear. And this morning, Herod reminds us that our lusts, too, will entangle us in, in ways we, we don't anticipate. What assuredly felt to Herod like innocent gawking entangled him in a web that eventually led to murder. How we need the reminder, don't we, that sin leads to death. That flirtatious conversation at work will lead to callousness in your marriage. What feels like innocent scrolling will lead to shame and frustration. Brothers and sisters, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Herod's model, example, warns us of the dangers of simple gawking, simple worldly lusts. That's not all he warns us of. He also warns us of the allure, the taste of, of power. Now, you aren't a king. You're not even a, a tetrarch, right? But how, too, do we have that temptation constantly in front of us to get power and then protect it, right? I think John is, I'm sorry, Matthew is a bit coy here. I think he's gently poking fun at Herod, even calling him King Herod. Because really, King Herod is not that big of a person on the world stage. He's a pawn of the Roman Empire. His, he kind of, he's kind of old money. He's kind of daddy's money, right? He, King Herod the Great, and he's just Herod the Tetrarch, right? But even so, even though this is true, the temptation to power that's right in front of him is one that is hard to resist for Herod. Instead of simply taking some embarrassment in front of his friends, he moves to murder a man whom he knows to be innocent. And how often do we, too, cling to what power we feel like we have? Right? Whether it's my kids or my health or my politics, how often do I see it in front of me and I try to grab whatever I can? You know, I'm not unlike the football coach, the flag football coach, who I saw across the field at a game a couple of games ago while we were out. 
And uh, I, I didn't see him. I heard him before I saw him. Um, he's, he's yelling out, barking out orders at these five-year-old flag football players. Um, and it, it's just funny because, he, you know, he's like, keep containment, take better angles. And I'm like, dude, they don't even know which end zone is theirs. They don't know what containment means. Um, and so he, he gets up to the line. It's a big play. And he says, down, set. He, he looks around the field. And he realizes, oh, the defense is lined up in such a way that one of my brilliant plays that I've drawn up in my living room at midnight because I couldn't sleep is perfect for this scenario. He says, down, set. He realizes, i, I got to change the play. So he yells, Texas. And all the five-year-olds, of course, used to down, set, hike, immediately run down the field, right? And instead of executing this brilliant play that he's devised in his mind, probably spent way too many hours on, instead we get an, they get an onside, offside penalty, and they back up five yards, right? Uh, this, this is kind of like us in grasping for power, right? Oh, if I could just execute this wonderful play, and then our life just runs right out in front of us thinking we said hike, right? Man, do we scramble to put more money in the bank account, more groceries in the pantry, more congressmen in the legislature, thinking, man, if we could just get that one, then we'll have it. Then we'll be secure. Then people won't laugh at us. And all the while, the Lord is calling to you and to me, stop grasping at straws, repent, and come near. Stop grabbing for the next thing in front of you. Turn Repent and come near to me. So yes, Herod is evil, but Herod is not a sociopath, right? He didn't want any part of executing a prophet. Instead, he's, he said, look, I, I don't want any part of it. I just want him in prison. And yet, the web entangled him. He found himself a murderer. But instead of repenting at this point, he continues on, and now we see at the beginning of chapter 14, he hears about this guy named Jesus. So Matthew gives us this flashback to why, because it's odd that Herod hears about this guy performing miracles named Jesus, and he thinks, oh, that's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Can you hear Herod's guilty conscience in the back? He is seeing ghosts where none are behind every bush. He's hearing the cries of John in his sleep. He is filled with shame over what he's done. And although John didn't even perform any miracles, he hears about the miracles of Jesus. And he thinks, this is John, come back to get me. You see, Herod's guilt is driving him and driving his conscience to see shame rather than an opportunity for repentance. I, I want to I stop here and, and talk to our kids for just a moment. So, um, yeah, boys and girls, Vincent, Tristan... Judah, Amos, Abigail. First of all, I just want to say you guys are awesome. I get so excited to look around, and you guys have, the past eight months have been thrown in here. It's been different. It's been kind of weird. You guys have done a great job at sitting, listening, keeping your hands busy, but keeping your ears open. And I'm so proud of you guys for, for being here and, and listening um, and almost sometimes being, being quiet. Um, I mean, boys and girls, if you would, just, just look up here for just a minute. I, I want to tell you that God's Holy Spirit lives in us, and it tells us when we do something wrong. It tells us when something's not right. And that makes us feel bad, right? That makes us feel shame. That makes us feel guilty. But what God is telling us is that we don't have to stay that way. That's a good thing. God is telling us that we need His help that we need to come to Him. When we feel bad, when our conscience, our, our mind, the Holy Spirit tells us that we've done something wrong, 
That's God telling us to come to him. But he also tells us, don't just feel bad. Come to Jesus. Come to God. He will listen. He wants you to come to him. He will forgive you. If you tell him you're sorry, if you tell him you need Jesus' help, he will listen and he will forgive you. You can go back to drawing now. Um, It's important for us, isn't it, to remember that Herod could have listened to John. He could have repented at any point in this story. You see, Jesus, who Herod will deal with in a moment, came to save men and women just like Herod. He came to save adulterous, oppressive, murdering hearts. Perhaps this morning you've been running from the friends and family who God has put in your life to prick your conscience, who God has put in your life to remind you that you need Jesus, that you need the Lord, and instead you shut them out, you push them away, and you continue your own way. And God is telling you this morning, stop, stop running away. Stop suppressing. Stop ignoring my spirit. Instead, come to me like Herod should have. Don't be like Herod and seek convenience by bearing your sin. Instead, take the next step of faith toward Jesus. Come to Jesus. John's voice rings out to us this morning, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And behold, John had. You see, John had seen Jesus. And here's where we see the second character in our story. John's gospel propels him to courage. John had seen him. As a matter of fact, after John baptized Jesus, he says in his own words in John chapter 1, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Like the man in Matthew 13 who had found a treasure hidden in a field and sold out everything he had to buy that field. John has sold out everything he has to follow Jesus. You see, if Herod is given to us to show us what a good king is not like, John is given to us to show what a good prophet is like. Jesus had given a few chapters earlier in uh, Matthew chapter 5, if you remember those things we call the Beatitudes, Jesus' vision of what the good life looks like. John is a living picture of that man, isn't he? John is poor in spirit. John knows what it is to mourn. John hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He's a living embodiment of that that image that the psalmist gives us in Psalm chapter 1 of the tree planted by streams of water. May we hear of John, and like James chapter 5, encourage us to take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. John was a righteous man. And he was also courageous, not just privately, but publicly. John was courageous when it came time to speak truth to power. He refused to glaze over or to excuse Herod in search of influence or political expediency. He came from a long line of prophets who, like Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 13, refused to cry out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. The 19th century bishop, J.C. Ryle, encapsulated John's approach to political power well. He said, John didn't flatter the king's ungodliness by using soft words to describe his offense. He told his royal hearer the plain truth, regardless of all consequences. You see, John was a righteous man, but he wasn't just righteous in his private life. He wasn't just righteous behind the prayer closet. He was that. But he was also righteous in his public life. But in in being righteous in this way, he didn't just score 
easy political points, right? By casting stones at the faraway emperor, by getting easy applause, by criticizing those Gentiles and those foolish pagans. You see, in speaking about Herod, John brought his prophetic edge where it was least likely to get him applause. He brought it to his own backyard. He brought it where it would actually cost him, where he would actually risk something. You see, John was aware of that truth that God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, that sin is crouching at our door, that sin was crouching at his door, that the sins that we need to be most aware of, the sins that we need to be most well-versed in critiquing are the ones that crouch at our door. As an election looms, we shouldn't abandon the public good, but may we not be so busy about the busyness of throwing stones at Washington's corruption or Hollywood's immorality that we miss the sin crouching at our door. My friends, if you're like me, you can wax eloquent on the cultural issues our nation faces, the nuances of policies to address justice, the immorality apparent in many of our leaders. But what are the sins that the person you sit next to in life group struggling with? What are the pitfalls that are most likely to take them down? And how are you encouraging them and exhorting them to fight those sins? More pointedly, what sins have the last eight months exposed in your heart? What sins are you wrestling with? Can you name them? Have you repented of them? Are you fighting them? Do you have verses that you're going to to chew on and marinate when they tempt you once again? Are you too busy looking around at the sins of faraway people to see the sins that are crouching at your and my door? It takes very little courage to post something politically controversial on Facebook. It takes much greater courage to confront your friend about his crude joke demeaning women or her pattern of quarrelsome talk. This kind of courage can only be fueled by a radical hope in the resurrection. It doesn't come naturally to us. We don't do this on our own, do we? We look around and we critique what's easy and safe to critique, but we rarely look in where the only way we can do this is if we truly, like John did, believe in the power of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, Luke recounts the time when Jesus was informed that Herod wanted to kill him. Someone came up to me and said, Hey, Jesus, did you know that I hear a word on the street that says Herod wants to kill you? Listen to Jesus' response. I imagine Jesus' words gave John great comfort when he heard the door open and saw a man with a sword walking in. Jesus said, Go and tell that fox, Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Jesus said, tell Herod he will kill me. But it won't be because my life is in his hands. No, he'll kill me. But it's because my life is in my father's hands. And on the third day, I'll finish the job. I'm not staying in the grave. My friend, if the resurrection wasn't true, would your life look any different than it does today? What risk is God calling you to take that can only matter, that can only be significant if the resurrection is true? John is the last and the greatest of these great Old Testament prophets, these men and women of God. And his story actually reminds us, I think Matthew wants us to think of, the story of Elijah. Do you remember 
Elijah and Ahab, and you probably have heard the name Jezebel, right? So Jezebel is the wife of Ahab. Ahab was not a good king like Herod, evil man, but also like Herod, married to a more evil woman. And Ahab was going about his evil business, and Jezebel comes in and makes everything much worse. So Jezebel has encouraged Ahab to replace the, um, in, the, in the places of worship, to put Baals in the temple. And Elijah, one of the prophets who's still alive because Jezebel has cut most of them down, while he's on the run, he sends word to Jezebel and her prophets of Baal that he wants to challenge them to a duel. You remember the story? And they come out, and Elijah says, yeah, get your altar ready. Prepare the altar. I'll get my altar ready. And I tell you what, you guys ask your God to consume your sacrifice with fire, and I'll ask mine to consume my sacrifice with fire. And whoever makes the biggest fire wins. And the prophets of Baal say, hmm, okay. This is one way to get rid of this guy who seems to be a thorn in our side, so let's do it. And they come out, right, and you remember the story. They yell, scream, cut themselves, do all kinds of embarrassing things. All the while, Elijah's like, hmm, maybe... Maybe he's busy. Is he in, in, actually, a, a literal translation there could be maybe he's in the bathroom, right? Uh, he's just poking fun at these prophets, just getting his vindication completely, isn't he? And then he says, okay, my turn. And he, he prays a very simple prayer. And before he can even get the words, please consume the altar out of his mouth, he's on the first syllable of altar, and immediately his pillar of fire from heaven comes down and consumes the whole thing. It's burned to smithereens. There's not even an altar left, much less a sacrifice. Elijah gets his vindication in front of Jezebel and her minions. And yet, Matthew is drawing our attention to the fact that John gets the opposite, doesn't he? He gets no vindication. As Elijah gets fire from heaven, God is mocked. I'm sorry, as Elijah gets fire from heaven, as God is mocked by Ahab and Jezebel, John doesn't get the same. Matt Blackwell says, John's life ends not with him being celebrated or even exonerated but instead decapitated. John is waiting for his fire from heaven moment, and instead he ends up shamed and humiliated with his head on a platter in front of his enemies. My friends, we should pray for fire from heaven. We should pray for healing of our sicknesses. We should pray for salvation of our lost children. But you must know that whether you get Elijah's ending or John's, you have a guarantee of Jesus' presence and his compassion. And this is where I love verse 12. You probably didn't even hear it as it was read. But verse 12 talks about John's disciples. They came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. You see, chapter 14, at least in the chapter divisions, is immediately in the middle of Matthew's gospel. You get 28 chapters, right? We're in chapter 14. We've just heard that Jesus' family is largely rejecting him. And now we've got this story that's not just a flashback, but I would say also a foreshadowing of what's coming for the final prophet, the Messiah. You see, as Matthew has us thinking about Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah are waiting for the fire from heaven to come down, Jesus has been misunderstood by his, I'm sorry, rejected by his family, misunderstood by his disciples, and now he's being persecuted by the local ruler. When it's all said and done, people don't seem to be buying what Jesus is selling, do they? The question looms over the text, and it also looms over us, doesn't it? Is evil winning? 
Is the darkness getting denser? In your quiet moments, have you asked that question lately? Is evil winning? The darkness often feels overwhelming, doesn't it? As I pray and counsel and, and walk with you, I'll be honest, many times I get in my car and I just cry out, How long, oh Lord? How long? Is evil winning? Is the darkness going to lift? But in Matthew's gospel, we do get a flashback, but we also, as I said, get a foreshadow. You see, Luke tells us of Jesus' encounter with Antipas after Pilate sends Jesus away to him. And again, Herod is spineless. Again, he's curious. He wants to see Jesus perform a miracle, but when it comes down to it, his hand is instrumental in crucifying Jesus and making him the Lamb of God that John has proclaimed. You see, Jesus' role as courageous prophet would lead to his death. His mighty kingship would be inaugurated as he rose from the grave. And now he stands ready as your compassionate priest. He is the mediator between God and man. We have one mediator, one priest. Jesus can bear our burdens. Jesus can bear your burdens. Are you anxious this morning about finances? Are you grieving loss? Have the last few months exposed sins that you didn't know were there and that you're quite frankly terrified of? Look at what John's disciples do in verse 12. They go and tell Jesus. In their greatest moment of grief and loss and confusion, they don't understand God's plan. Evil looks to be winning. The darkness is becoming denser and harder to get out of. And they go and tell Jesus. Jesus is not repulsed by us going and telling him. My friend, he is glad you are coming. Come to him, repenting of the sin that ensnares you. Come to him, asking for the confidence that can drive you to live a life of virtue. Hear his promise. Jesus said, peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, this morning, take caution from the life of Herod. Take confidence from the life of John, but most of all, take comfort from the person of Jesus. He is the friend of sinners. He is the deliverer of the oppressed. Would you go and tell him? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model of John who courageously went to his death, not out of mere sacrifice, but because he had found a treasure worthy of more than life itself. Father, would you remind us of that treasure this morning? Help us to see the treasure that is worth our lives, our sacrifices, any risk that you ask us to. Lord, I pray for those here who are hurting. Lord, I pray for those who are wondering how long, when will the darkness lift? Lord, open our eyes to see Jesus. Help us to go and tell him. Lord, may 
these hurts and these pains and these frustrations and confusions, Lord, I ask that in myself as well as in the rest of your people, that these would not be opportunities for us to flee from Christ, but instead opportunities for us to run to Christ. Lord, for those who are ensnared and can't see a way out, I pray that their response would be the same, that unlike Herod, that they would run to Jesus, they would hear his voice, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Heavenly Father, most of all, we pray that you would be honored in our lives. Pray that you will continue to use us for the time we have left. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.